Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is the actor and writer Sharon Morgan. I'm chuffed that she's been willing to come on. Hi Sharon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How has this kind of period been for you of the pandemic over the last year? It's been a mixture, really. I was about to do Clytemnestra, the Aristaya, with August 12, with the amazing Matilde. Right. Yes. Um, we did one morning, really, of rehearsal in the Millennium Centre, and then we all went home. Arts Council were great, we all got paid, etc. And then, it was a sort of huge relief, in a way, that we couldn't do anything, because I realised for the whole of the sort of 50 years of my career, I had been constantly mm. either working or looking for work, and there was never a time really um, where you could completely relax. And I hadn't realized how constant that effort was. And so it was quite lovely for a while to be able to sit in the garden and listen to the birds in that glorious spring and then the summer. And then I was writing. Um, chapter for a book about Welsh language theatre about women playwrights and where are they and you know why aren't there more of them and if they are there why aren't they getting the attention they deserve so that was lovely to have a space to do that and since I have picked up you know enough jobs to keep going and of course I've had the SEISS so I've been very very lucky and I have a garden so um you know, I've managed to keep going. I think that outside space is so important for people's mental health, and it has been throughout the pandemic, maybe in a way that we didn't realise before how, and um, it's been important for me, certainly. It was, um, it, it, it was a bit like my growing up in the 50s, you know, you could cross Cathedral Road without looking right or left for traffic, and... <laughs> Many things have come yeah. to, to light, really, um, because of the pandemic. It, it's shown us the incredible inequality in our society, the lack yes. of interest or a proper uh, um, care about people who are caring, the situation of the NHS. Um, and let's hope we don't return to that normal. Uh, and that, that uh, lessons are learned so we can make a, a fairer, saner society. That's what I hope as well. But I mean, you know, older people or people who are disabled, I think, have been 
their value has been, they, they have been seen as as value or because those terms are like at risk or vulnerable and being placed on people like myself and maybe yourself as well. Uh, but I'm hoping maybe, you know, after the pandemic, we can really reevaluate the way we look at those kinds of things. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's hope it is a sort of positive step towards, yes, to being aware. I mean, you know, um, older people in care homes, um, older people in general, this, this tremendous richness and diversity that we have should be celebrated and we should all be working towards the same goal and taking care of everybody in society. Definitely. So the first thing I want to ask you is the first thing I ask everyone who comes on this podcast is how did you first get interested in theatre? Well, through my mother really. Um, it was a very different time. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s I lived in a small village outside Carmarthen. The only professional theatre that I saw was Babes in the Wood in the Ground in Swansea, right. I think. That was the only, um, you know, until I was, well, I suppose, into my late teens. Um, and um, there were amateur companies. Edna Bonnell, famously, would come to the, the village hall. And my mother, we lived in Ferryside for a while, and my mother produced plays then, and she taught drama with the LEA. And she loved theatre and drama, and she would take me to see films in the Lyric in Carmarthen musicals like High Society, etc. And I think really I sort of, I breathed that in with her, but I mm. wanted to be a ballet dancer to begin with. And that came from um, the comic girl where there was a character called Belle of the Ballet. So mm. I had ballet lessons and I would dance with the Amateur Operatic Society in Carmarthen, um, in St. Peter's. And But I was good at school academically, so everybody mm. said, you can't go to drama school. The idea of going to drama school was a very strange thing then. Um, and so I went to uh, Cardiff University to do history. <laughs> but I did history, English and archaeology in my first year. So um, we also had a fantastic English teacher, as many people say, like Vera Thomas, who inspired us and we read plays in, mm -hmm. in school. But it, it seems as if the, the love for the theatre was, was always there, really, and wanting to perform. Apparently, I used to perform on the kitchen table when I was three to entertain the family. And... Um, so um, it's linked, I suppose, with a sort of an innate desire to perform. And, and were you involved with Eistedd Rode and things like that? No, I had nothing to do with Eistedd Rode. My mother had won many caps for singing and, and piano and she hated it with a clear <laughs> 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 sort of hatred. And um, I have inherited that in a sense that I don't think, you know, competition is the place for art. Um, uh, and judging various individuals on very narrow texts, whatever, I don't think uh, I don't think it's useful. So I, I feel quite lucky that I sort of avoided um, the Eisteddfod. <laughs> I, I understand <laughs> your point there. Just the idea of competitive arts—it's like it's an interesting yeah, it's concept. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I have I have been a judge in some. Which I've reluctantly agreed to do, but I haven't enjoyed doing mm -hmm. in any way. Um, so no, the Estevard was wasn't a part of my life. And in terms of w when did you kind of 
decide this is what I want to do. I would like a career as an actor. And were your family supportive of that? Well, as I say, everybody said you have to go to university. You're very lucky. And there were very few women who went to university in in the 60s, you know. And um, also it meant they thought that I, and I always wanted to earn my own living, that I would have, be able to get a good good job, etc. My father was a a teacher. So I say my mother was a teacher. Uh, So, you know, this idea that this was the best thing to do. But um, funny enough, uh, my cousin, David Howell, the actor, had joined the Arts Council training scheme at Company Theatre Cymru. And um, that was how I found out about it. And they were advertising. This was set up by the incredibly, uh, well, what a talented person, Wilbur Lloyd Roberts, who set up Company Theatre Cymru. When professional theatre came to Wales, um, as we know it now, really, in the mid-60s, there had been no really professional theatre before then. And it came in English and Welsh in the form of the Welsh Theatre Company and the branch in Bangor. And of course, um, working in Welsh, there were actors like Rachel Thomas and Dilwyn Owen and people like this. The only work they got to, there was a rep in the Grand Theatre in Swansea, there was a radio rep as well. But most actors, Welsh or English then, had to go to England, mainly London, to make a career if they wanted to work professionally as actors. Um, So uh, there was really a dearth of professional Welsh actors. So Wilbert set up this scheme uh, using wonderfully talented actors who were already around. The three people who supported him in setting up this company, John Ogwen, Gail Morgan Reese and Beryl Williams. But then he set up these training schemes where one year they'd be technicians and ex-actors. Um, and uh, I think we were the third year, me, Margaret Esley and Devon Roberts, the only three that continued with, with our careers. But we okay. did three months of movement voice, history of theatre, etc. Then we went out on the road as ASMs, putting up sets and making tea and coffee for everybody. And it was wonderful. I, I just loved it. But also, it was so linked in with the chain, massive changes that are happening in right. in Wales, and particularly with the Welsh language of the Rise of Condestriaeth, Gwynver Evans, who won the first seat for Plaid Cymru in Carmarthen. I was mm. on the square in 1966. And so I was sort of combining my want to perform um, and to communicate to an audience with my part in the changing and the creating, really, of a newer, modern Welsh nation. So then has theatre always been kind of like a political expression for you? Well, I'm, I think it has to be rooted in something. Uh, it obviously has to be entertaining, um, not sort of, although I have... Um, taken part in many sort of um, shows, I suppose, that had a, a political um, reason for being in the first place. I mean, like setting up Theatre Barrack House, which we did in 1977. Right. It was the feeling that the Welsh audience wasn't, Cymru Theatre Cymru had become bourgeois and stale and irrelevant, right. you know, taking a, a translating place from the European canon, etc., etc., and not creating the sort of stuff that the audience wanted to see or were relevant to the lives of the audience and so we we began with Chrysler Royal actually in East Everton in, uh, in, in Wrexham um, which was um, uh, which was a, a, a pastiche a sort of it had music it had a sort of sketches but it was basically a critique of the Royal Jubilee at the time so right. yes I think 
theatre has to be relevant and I think to be relevant politics with a small p is about how we organize our lives and how we live our lives and there's no way of escaping that when you create any piece of theatre in a way no well said I completely agree with that um so I I want to touch a bit more on community can we um what kind of skills did that give you as an emerging actor and also in terms of how needed do you think that would be as a scheme now were to exist within the contemporary Welsh theatre landscape? It gave me very basic skills during that for the first sort of training period and then I mean we went out as ASMs but you also had small parts like fourth customer, whatever, in, in the flavour of the films I remember, and then right. we, La Molière, La Maladie Imaginaire in Welsh, Claude Glevid, and we were sort of the gypsy dancers or something in the old tracts or whatever. Um, uh, so uh, then, but you learned on the job, really, and it was solid. It was quite relentless, really, looking back. We were either rehearsing or performing consistently for that whole eight, 18 months, and then... It gave me a sort of foundation. I went away and did telly, and then I came back as an associate actress between 1974 and 1976, right. where I got to play things like Nora and Doll's House, etc., etc., where, you, yeah, you learnt and you grew and you were constantly trying to develop your craft all the time. Um, I think those schemes were very important at that time. Kevin Roberts, when he began Theatre Kennedy Lysol, replicated that, and he took on an ensemble of um, young actors... Um, but by then the whole theatre situation has changed and young people now do tend to go into drama schools in droves we have um, Trinity St David's at the, the gate in Cardiff we have the atrium we have what's mm. called music and drama in Wales and many many choose to go over the border to Radha Land or whatever so I think um, being an actor and thinking about being an actor um in Welsh or English in Wales is not such a sort of strange thing. So I don't necessarily think that that would be uh, useful mm. now. Although what would be brilliant would be to have, um, to be able to be part of an ensemble because that was the other mm. thing. You know, when I was an associate actress, me, Gray Evans and Devon Roberts were the sort of three core players, but many people came to do productions over and over again and you create that sense of trust and that you're able mm. to relax because you don't have to worry about, you know, the, the money because you're you're on a weekly wage within yeah. the company. Um, it is invaluable. It would be fantastic, uh, you know, for that to happen within. Um, what I'd like to see as a um, national theatre company, bilingual national theatre company that encompassed in some ways all our theatre companies cooperating together. Um, because we're a small country mm. and I uh, don't think we can afford not to cooperate. So in that sense, maybe an ensemble that would take in younger actors uh, would be useful, I think, yes. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying in terms of integrating those national theatre companies which have, uh, have felt a bit separate recently. And maybe they're going off and doing their own thing and not supporting artists as well as maybe they could be doing. And just 
starting up that. Yeah, it's about having that dialogue between them. I think that would be really useful. And for them to know where to find the talent that's coming out of drama schools and places like the atrium and just having those links in play yes absolutely we need to be open as, as a theatrical community as an artistic community i think it's really important we're a very small country that, that there aren't that many of us it's a young democracy we've only had devolution for 20 years we're still forging mm. our way um, and I think that unless we can all work together, and what you said then was really interesting about, you know, putting artists really at the forefront, as opposed to having these institutions or these buildings as being important. I mean, it's fascinating over COVID. Many people have brought this up. There are people running companies, etc., who are obviously getting paid. The, the Many of the administrators yeah. are furloughed. But the artists, many of whom I've been lucky, but many of whom have been struggling and have nothing at all uh, and have been yeah. reliant on universal credit. It's, again, the, the light is being shone on the structure and it really needs to be uh, re-looked at, I think. And also I think that the people leading the theatre companies really have to be passionate about Wales and nurturing, nurturing not only the artists and the actors, but nurturing the sense, the idea of a culture, the theatre culture for Wales, without being too inward looking, as Mark Drake would often <laughs> 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 possibly be independent, because, you know, he has said, here we're going to have an iron God, I can yes. believe that. That was... I know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and also creating those inclusive environments where people feel that they can reach out to those companies. Um <sighs> Yes, because um, yes. some people, including myself, have had experience where they don't feel welcome within particular theatre environments for whatever reason, and yeah, that comes from training, I think. Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's just open, open doors. You know, the the, the time was as well um, when there was the feeling of a theatrical community, particularly in. Well, in, in Cardiff, um, where Chapter, the Sherman, etc., everybody would work, there were many companies, we'd work together, we'd exchange ideas, we'd go and see each other's shows, and that, and that isn't because of COVID, but before COVID, that seemed to have sort of disappeared, mm. um, and I think um, that you have to think of the whole of Wales, people, people touring as well, there were many, many companies touring, there seemed to be an energy and a vibrance that seems to have disappeared, which would be really nice if we could get that back. Mm. I think, as you say, being open, you have to be open to um, support creativity. You can't feel that, you know, that it's not open to you, that you can't talk about mm. it, you can't reach out, because you can't be creative if you've got that barrier within yourself where you're afraid to go and talk to people. Or, you know, it, it's just wrong. Definitely, I definitely agree with that. I'm going to move on slightly. Um, I'd like to ask you about your process. So, what is your process as an actor? Has it changed over the years? And how much does it depend on the project that you're working on? I think that basically, I don't think it's it's um, changed that much just looking for truth in the character, the emotional truth of the character, 
um, very crudely based on, on, on the text, the writer's intent, what the character is, what other characters say about the character, etc. Creating an emotional um, graph of that character's journey and then discovering how to communicate that to the audience, really, the, you know, when to laugh, when to cry. And that's really, really sort of basic and crude. But um, creating a character is, for me, one of the great delights of being an actor, mm. not being myself, hiding myself within as much as possible. It's always disappointing when you uh, on TV you see yourself back and you think you've transformed yourself incredibly, but really it's the same old you. But, um, you know, that, that thing of being someone else, what, what a joy, what a gift that is. Yeah. Um, um, before that would happen, you'd go to the rehearsal space and everybody would have thought about those things and then there'd be discussion and then between you all you would create the show with the director etc and I mean that that is the joy of the rehearsal space where you go in you're allowed to fail you can expose yourself you're raw but you know it's it's a safe space to be yeah. in and, and you know that's that's just great um I found uh, more recently that some uh, directors well over the years really everyone has a different process every director is different but there seems to be more of a rigidity um, crept into rehearsal spaces where people tend to think this this is how you do it and then everyone has to fit into that where you have sometimes to sit around the table for far too long as far as I'm concerned where you have everyone sits around and actions every line mm. or there is no discussion on the rehearsal floor but the director just gives notes and you do it again and for me, the, the actor's voice in the rehearsal space has tended to be silenced much more recently. Then you have other directors who aren't interested in that at all and let you just get on with your own thing because they're more interested in the larger picture, the technical stuff or whatever, you know. But wherever you find yourself, you, you, you adapt, you're open to change, whatever. You have to be part of that company's ethos, but you need to protect yourself. And within that, I still always find that I use that that process of creating the truth the reality mm -hmm. of my character within whatever framework and sometimes it's more difficult and sometimes it's made easier and there are some directors that you enjoy working with more and i'm sure you know that will vary from individual to individual sometimes as as a woman and as a feminist when you're working on a script that you know gives you a strange an interesting insight into yeah. what the writer thinks about women sometimes you you subvert that, you know, you mm. try to subvert it in a way, if you, if you can, within That's the situation. But um, luckily, I, I haven't found myself very often in, in that situation, but that sometimes happens. So, yes, it's about being open and, and about adapting while protecting yourself, really, to, because you are, you have to be raw, you mm. have to be vulnerable, you have to fail, you have to not be frightened of failing, that is so important. And as your career has progressed, have you become more selective in terms of the directors you work with and the people that you want to work with? Yes. Oh, Kieran, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, uh, <laughs> um, I'm not in a position to choose, right. and I never have been. I've used all along, really, in my career, I've used television, in a sense, to subsidise my theatre work. Uh, because right. uh, that's you, very often you're actually subsidising um, theatre yourself because in Wales there's not that much money in theatre and particularly the sort of work that I've done generally has been new writing for small companies and um, 
and touring, etc. And so, um, you know, it's um, it's really, uh, it's, I'm not in a position to be selective. As far as selective right. goes, what really excites me is that I, I people offer me exciting work to do, and I'm very mm. pleased to have that. And then sometimes you have to do the work that doesn't excite you as much. But you learn from everything, yeah. and you always develop whatever the work is. You always learn something mm. new. And um, in 1978, you appeared in the film Grand Slam, which um, I'm sure a lot of people will know, even of, of my generation, by Gwendolyn Pye, um, with Joey Pussmore, yes, and Winter Davis. Um, what was that experience like? Well, I was working for the Welsh Theatre Company, um, as an associate actress at the time, and they, right. they released me to do it. I was doing um, a play called Papedai, just before that by Urian William, and I was also doing a sitcom for the BBC called um, Glass Dorlan. And so it was just another job, really. I mean, it wasn't something that I considered to be out, out of the ordinary or unusual. I'd worked with John Hevin on Rhandir Moin, which was the adaptation of the Marianne's novel, um, and uh, really enjoyed working with him. And I mean, now they would actually employ a French person. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't, you know. But I mean, it was it was great fun to do. I didn't go to Paris, luckily, because they came back very much the worst for wear. I got to wear an incredible wig and have a fake tan outside like this. <laughs> you know. And then I went away to London to do Under mm. Wood in the West End. Because um, yeah. we, we filmed it in 1977 in those days. It took so long to edit things and things didn't come right. to the screen for a year. And by then I was I was in um, in the West End doing Intermittent Court. And, um, you know, it was it was just quite uh, quite amazing, really. It's, it's quite amazing how it's caught the imagination of people and how people still can come up to me looking. I'm, I'm 70 now, 71 now, and... Um, uh, or very recently, uh, someone would come up and say, "Weren't you that girl in Quote dreams of it. It's fantastic, really, and I, and I think it's a it's a great tribute to John Hevin, who broke all the rules. Used handheld. It was a combination, wasn't it? A documentary and and drama. Yeah. Um, a fantastic improvisation. Sean Probert and Dewey Puss. You know that script was improvised mm. incredibly, incredibly, and. Um, Yes, to bring Windsor Davis and Hugh Griffith together, and Oscar, Oscar-winning Hugh Griffith, um, and it's very, very innocent now. The way it, you know it talks about sexuality and homosexuality, or I mean, it's it, there's just such a gentleness to it, um, and yeah, it's, the sad thing is we haven't seemed to have created many, many other iconic films that stay in people's imaginations. No, that that's true. Um... I don't know whether it's to do with funding. It's normally to do with funding, but in terms of Welsh film, you don't hear much about Welsh films that that make that impact these days. No, no. Well, in English, um, when S for C around S for C in the eighties and nineties, we we did think we were going to have a film industry here. Right. You know, we had we did Gadolenin. I mean, I went to Russia to Saint Petersburg to film. Gadda Lenin, which was extraordinary for a script by sadly the late Sean Ariane and, and of Emlyn, who was 
um, Solomon and Gaynor, his win, nominated mm. for Oscars. It, yeah. it, it, looked, it was looking really positive um, and fantastic and exciting. Um, they were all in Welsh, of course. And sadly, um, that seems to have come to an end and, and it isn't being replicated. Instead, what we're getting, lots of people coming here to film, you know, yes. from other places. But um, we're not nurturing our own film industry. I'm looking forward to seeing Glaze, the latest um, film by Roger Williams. Yes, me too. We just have great reviews. And that's very, very exciting. But there's no reason, I don't think, why we shouldn't be able to have our own Welsh film. The talent is here, the technicians, Definitely. the actors. We have everything, you know. And it's about nurturing that talent and providing the pathways for that talent to achieve their yes, potential. Yeah, yeah, I mean, really supporting Welsh writers, not not supporting people from other cultures, you know, <laughs> supporting our own culture, really, um, thinking in terms of Wales, which um, has become sort of sadly lacking across many areas and over the last, I'd say, increasingly so, over the last sort of, I don't know, five to ten years, really, that we that we had in those days very clearly. We were very clear about, you know, who we were and what we wanted to do and the ambition of us, was, mm. particularly in those early days. Of course, the money's been cut, I know, it is, that's different. That's one, what I was going to say, how much is it to do with funding and how right. much is it to do with what we could be doing that we're not doing? Well, I think, yeah, there, there is just something to, because, yeah, funding is obviously a, 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 an issue, but I mean, not that much of an issue. I think where there's a will, there's a way, and where the, the funding should be definitely channeled into homegrown talent. I mean, I was talking to a, a, um, a well-known Welsh director, a Welsh-speaking Welsh director, who was making a, 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 a big feature film, and he wasn't allowed to cast Welsh people because you need all this idea, you need to have names, you know, all this thing about you have to have names. In a recent series called The Pact that they've been making here, where the leads weren't Welsh, you know, some of our mm. Welsh actors were in it, I mean, the wonderful Irie Thomas, etc. But, but there, were, there were one woman from Scotland, and from, you know, if you are going to make work in Wales, surely you should be casting Welsh yes. actors. I, you know, it really isn't because otherwise you're taking advantage of the landscapes, the environment, without taking advantage also of the immense talent that we've got in this country. And there's there's a danger there of misrepresentation if you follow that model as well. Uh, yeah. Are you Absolutely. are you misrepresenting the country because yeah. you don't understand the historical and cultural context of it? Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, you've also, for TV, you've appeared in continuing dramas like Public Home and Hobby City. What are the challenges of that for you as an actor, uh, as opposed to um, a play or um, a feature film? I, I, I guess it's more more of an endurance thing? Um, well, I mean, I've been in public home three times now. <laughs> I was in 1976 as a teacher called Sean Jones. Just That was just for seven weeks. And then in 1884 to 86, I was Sylvia Bevan, who was a 
a Tory farm woman with a horse. <laughs> Brenda wears a white fur coat and originally had one of those um, uh, uh, um, little, um, oh, I can't remember what, what you call them now, um, um, oh, a, a little disabled um, carriage. Um, mobility scooter. Mobility scooter. <laughs> showing my age. A mobility scooter, um, which was great fun, but they took that away from me for some reason. I was very disappointed oh. with that. Uh, but I have a stick. Um, but um, but um, and Brenda was sort of outrageous and wanted to scam everybody and care about anybody's yeah. you know playing and people etc etc. Um, it's very hard. I, f I find it very hard, particularly because I like change and I like to. Mm. Um, experiment and um, also I like to have a certain amount of control over my my character and oh, the trajectory of the character so you build up the characters I was talking about earlier and the emotional ground yeah. etc but with, with soaps you really don't know what's coming next and they take your characters in into very unexpected places so you have to try and sort of wriggle into those spaces that you you know you're put into etc etc and um, um I, you know, and as far as the mobility scooter and the stick was concerned, you know, that that was just sort of superficial, you know, there was, it, there was, it was just, there was no meaning to it. No. They don't necessarily have put meaning into these things when they, when they create characters. Um, and also, it is relentless and you don't have any other life as well. You have to dedicate yourself to that. Yeah. It's very quick. There's no rehearsal space. Your time. You just talk. You know. You quickly talk through the script, and then you're there, and then you're doing one, maybe two. two. There's no discussion. There's no, it's not very creative. It suits some people. Mm. Me for many reasons. It does. It doesn't really. Hobby City was just just one off, and that oh, was okay. like with me and Ivan Hudavi that I've worked with a lot. But um, with um, Com and I did Belonging, of course. I did two series of Belonging, mm. which was the very much missed, I'd say, English language song, which is what we really need in Wales as well. Um, but for me, yes, I'm, I get bored very quickly. Um, and I, I just I just want to be more than one character, you know, really, mm. if possible. I need to be about six or seven in a year. <laughs> Don't you find that there are possibilities to explore that character or get deeper into that character if you're playing them for a longer period of time? Um, no, no, I don't find that at all because they keep they keep changing the goalposts. They don't really right. know the character, the writers, and they just suddenly suddenly people you know are getting married to. Well, I mean, in, for example, in Bovlakum when I was in the eighties, suddenly this this very posh. Tory lady was having an affair with Dewey Puss, the mechanic. <laughs> and um, uh, there was no, you know, the, she just wouldn't, she just wouldn't do that. So you keep saying to yourself about your characters, you know, mm. she just wouldn't do that. There's no, there's no depth, you know, at all. Um, right. So it's very, very frustrating because you can't really develop the character because it's not you that's developing the character. They're developing the character and very often it's serving the plot, right. you know, because very difficult to find stories to keep these soaps going all this time it's very very hard you know i take my hat off to writers who create these complicated you know mm. so you're just a tool really to serve the plot and how it changes so it gets it gets very boring and superficial as far as i'm concerned did that but I, you know, me. did that frustration lead you to think well i'd, I'd like to give writing a go or is it something that you've always done? Or how do you, how did you start writing? 
Well, I always sort of wanted to write, but I was frightened, I suppose. Um, um, and um, interestingly, in this this um, a chapter of this book that I've been writing about women, about women, because why aren't there more playwrights, it's particularly in the Welsh language? But I mean, yeah. I don't think it's such a, a problem in, in English, maybe, and maybe in, in England. But I think perhaps it's the problem in English and in Wales as well. Uh, about the women writing in the first place because it's a very public thing writing a, a play for theatre in particular yeah. um it's a you're putting yourself out there and you're saying you know th these are my characters this is what happens etc it's a very it's a very public thing the rehearsal is a very public thing you're very exposed people come and, and watch <laughs> and i mean uh you know it, i think it's a very brave thing to do so um lots of things sort of came together basically um I was so frustrated in my 40s at not being offered interesting roles uh, as, a, as a woman, mainly because men were writing the parts, maybe. Um, and, I mean, feminism was a bit of a dirty word back in the 90s. Now it's acceptable to be a feminist, mm. but then... So it was. I, I just wanted more interesting stuff to do. I thought, I've got this five, really honed my craft, I'm on top of my game, and I'm not being offered anything interesting to do, so... Um, also, at the same time, there was a, quite a, a coterie of uh, well, yeah, men from the valleys who were writing plays, um, right. uh, like um, well, Dick Edwards, bless his soul. No, he, he wasn't from the valleys, but I mean, uh, um, Mark Jenkins. I mean, uh, there's Dick Edwards, Mark Jenkins, Alan Osborne, and then Ed Thomas and, and Ian Rowlands, who was in fact my partner at the time. And I would go and see the plays and, and be very annoyed at how they were portraying women or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, the thing is, well, you have to do it yourself. You can't mm. go on criticising other people. Um, and so the first thing I did was adapt a, a short story by Seaman de Beauvoir, which was a safer thing to do, adaptation. You're not putting yourself there. Yes. You know? um, but, um, yeah, and that was a one-woman show and that stretched me and that was fantastic. And then I, I started writing, me and Catherine had just established our own company, Ross's Cochium, because that's another thing as well, you can write stuff, but who the hell is going to put yes. it on? So, you know, I followed in the footsteps of Ian Rollins with Theatre Bead and Ed Thomas with The Fiction Factory um, to create your own company and then get a project grant. You know, I'd been part of uh, raising money um, for a project grant with the company Squarine that then became uh, Huila Flag to put on um, Gareth Miles's plays. Um, originally, and also, um, I saw how how Ed and Ian had been doing that. So, um, I spoken to the, the very supportive um, Mike Baker at the Arts Council, etc. So, I, I wrote then a trilogy of shows that were one woman shows. I mean, it's all about me, you know. So, so now I get to do them. Um, uh, called Eda Heed, which is Magic Threads. How sure. clear and this, um, all the colours of the rainbow and. Trevelyan a train glass travelling on the blue train, which were about um, the women in my family, really, the experiences of how you mm. live uh, within a patriarchal society and still find self-expression, etc., um, between 1850 and 1950, and All the Colors of Rainbows, about growing up in the 50s and 60s, and Trevelyan a train glass was about losing my mother, the menopause, and right. um, death coming you know getting older mm. um so I, I wrote those and we we put those on and i also translated um vagina monologues into welsh was in shenan and sharad and it was a very exciting time i played magic threads in, in new york and 
was part of the uh, Welsh um, uh, uh, St David's Day uh, Festival then in 2004 and we, I went to Morgantown to the North American Society uh, Welsh History um, Conference. I mean, it, it, is, it was fantastic and the response that we got for all those things was just wonderful. But it's, it's very, very hard work and very draining getting the mm. money, putting it on, touring, etc, etc. Was that... Was that an easier though than going down the route of getting a theatre to commission? Sorry if that's an ignorant question, but like. Well, yes, I mean it. Yes, absolutely. I I think in a way it was. In a way, it it you know it would have involved sort of trying to persuade people, but. It, so that would have been difficult. But in a way, it was safer, I suppose, in the sense that we were totally in control. Right. And so we get the money, we get to put it on. Nobody else is telling us, you have to do this, you have to do that. Nobody else, you know. So um, I suppose in a way it's um, it's an, in your control and you can do it when and how and where you want to do it. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, it's in fact, it's, it's easier. Probably the, the things that I wrote... I mean, including the, the translation of the vagina models. I don't know who would have who would have uh, put them on, really. You know, I, mm. I'm sure they'd have they'd have thought, oh well, no, we don't want we don't want that. You know, it's just who knows. Uh, but yeah. we, I didn't even try that. We 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 thought we do we do it ourselves is the best way. And I think that means you have complete integrity as well. You're doing yeah. just what you want. You're taking all the responsibility and you're taking all the flack if it doesn't work. But the satisfaction is immense. I bet, I bet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you wrote a play for hijinks in 2002 called Dreaming Amelia, which was, it was about um, Amelia Earhart, if, if I'm right. Well, um, it was about Amelia Earhart. Um, I mean, they insisted I put Amelia in the title. I wanted to call it Courage in a Silk Bandana or Sparkling Betty because really, but they said we have to have Amelia in the title because people will come then, you know, it's a sort of yeah. PR thing, people know it. It was about, it was about Amelia Earhart's ability to inspire really, okay. in the sense that the story was of a young, um, a poor girl living on the beach in Portal, in uh, Berryport who actually met Amelia Earhart in my story, you know, when she landed in Berryport yeah. in 1928, having been the first woman to cross the Atlantic. Well, she didn't fly the aeroplane, she was just sitting in the aeroplane, and that in itself was amazing that a woman could actually sit in an aeroplane and, and, cross, and, and cross the Atlantic. Um, but it was about inspiration, really, and how we all need to be inspired. And my, my mother had died not long before then, and, you know, you, you realise how, how much you depend on people when they're gone, and she was such a role model and my mentor, and I missed her so much, and I realised I wouldn't probably have been able to have half the confidence I had if I hadn't had her supporting me. Mm. And so this idea, this young girl didn't have anyone really to support her, and Amelia comes along, and she becomes a dancer, but she finds her own route as well, in the sense that she has a natural ability to dance. And then in the stories, yes. you know, we had um, Sean McDowell played Betty, and she could do tap, ballet, modern dance she was amazing and um she uh, she comes back if she goes to america the character and comes back eventually to create mm -hmm. her own school of dance based on welsh culture oh, wow. <laughs> um, so it's about being true to yourself about integrity mm -hmm. and about inspiration and it's about equality that everybody 
should have the opportunity to be able to express themselves and it shouldn't depend on money or background, you know, really. And, and were there any additional challenges for you because you were writing for actors who have learning disability? Yes. No, none of the actors had learning disabilities. At that time with High Drinks, they would do um, one show a year for actors uh, without learning disabilities, okay. but just main, mainstream. I had, um, the previous year, um, been in... Um, was it the previous year or the year after? No, it was just before, actually, Dreaming really came out, in Angels Don't Need Wings, that was written by Larry Allen, where we worked with uh, the High Drinks, actors right. of the High Drinks, and that was, that was a fantastic experience. Um, Larry very experienced in writing those plays and he wrote a lot for hijinks but mine was just about inspiration and equality really and mm. um, um, uh, uplifting going and doing shows that, that uplifted people that, so that people could feel yeah you know I, I can be who I want to be basically so those were that was the ethos of, of hijinks you know to 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 be inspirational, really. So, so, yeah, so that's why I thought I saw hijinks and immediately jumped to that. Yes, and I think now that it is, I don't think it's changed. I don't think they they do those tours anymore. I think it was just one a year that, that they would commission a writer, yeah, to write them without disabled actors. But, but what you say about um, positivity and theatre being uplifting and inspiration, I think that's so important. And because so often it can be the opposite. Sometimes we yes. do need pieces that, that inspire us and uplift us. Well, yes, absolutely. Where everybody, you know, whoever you are can watch it and believe in yourself and, and think about how, yeah, how you want your life to be, really. So, yes, it had a very strong message to everybody, you know, in that sense, yes. Definitely. Um... You've also um, done a lot of translation. You've translated several plays into Welsh. Um, what processes do you use when you're translating? Um, well, yes, I've got both young Godfrey from the Seaman de Beauvoir and Shalai Shard, Vagina Monologues, you know. Um, what I do, and I did the Laramie Project um, as Gwen Kungaru for Barrack House about the... Uh, the young gay guy who was beaten to death on the, on the mountain um, and uh, House of America, of course, that I'd been in. Yes. Um, and I transported them all. Uh, well, House of America. I didn't have to transport House of America because it was set in the top of the Swansea Valley. Yeah. But um, I, I adapted it in as much as I could in into that dialect that still older people, so mum in House of America spoke that dialect. But... Um, what I believe in is is actually transporting them into a Welsh setting, as right. opposed to, you know, leaving them in America or Paris or, or whatever, um, because um, I find that I think it makes it more real and more immediate for the audience to believe that you could meet these people if you're walking down the street, whatever. So that's a, sort of the first thing. Well, with the Laramie Project, I, I set it in Carmarthen, where there is an, an university. Um, because that was part of the story. There's a general hospital, etc. All and it, it's rural. There are fields not far yeah. from. You know all those things. It fit in. And in fact, I went to see a production that the Carrie Munn directed with uh, students in Trinity College in Carmarthen of 
Guancum Garu, which is what I call Army Project, which was fantastic, very challenging, because every actor has to play about nine different parts. Because oh, wow. uh, it was a verbatim uh, by the Tectonic Plates Theatre Company who travelled actually to Laramie to interview the people who were involved. Okay. Um, that's another reason I felt it had to, had to be put into Kamarva and placed in, in a realistic Welsh mm-hmm. um, um, town. So that's the begin with. And then when you're writing, as you know, Kieran, there's a big gap between written and spoken Welsh and everyone yes. has a different dialect, etc. So that I, I feel that the dialect of Senhouse America had to be the top of the Swansea Valley um, in Gobeithio Gorf, which she was from South Wales, but sort of a middle-class woman. So you, you tailor then the dialect so that it does... Uh, well, it's been published, Gobeithion um, Gorfwyll, in a book called Llaesin and Llefain with two other monologues by Gwaskai uh, Gwalch. And when the proofs came back, there were so many red marks on it because I had written it as it is spoken and yeah. it wasn't, you know, correct, grammar, grammatically correct Welsh. But I think that is a complete... It's, it's so different. It's a barrier between you and the audience, so it needs to be written in um, easily spoken um, language as well. Um, and I mean, it's the same process as an actor. You get into yeah. the characters. Well, I was lucky with um, House of America. I played Mam. I was very familiar with with the play, you know. Anyway, and I did Utah Bride by Carmen Stevens. I translated mm. from Utah, so I I was I did the English version and then I translated it. So, and it's about making it flow. Really, I find it very very enjoyable. Mm. I suppose um, there are certain certain sections that you've got to change the meaning of and idioms and like some things I don't know what I'm saying here Sharon so <laughs> but like yeah, some do yeah, you yeah. understand what I mean kind of yeah. of like those certain those certain parts of the play that will change because of the new context that you're putting it with it yeah. yes I mean it, it is very challenging I mean English is so widely spoken it's a very flexible language and there are so many synonyms for so you know etc mm. etc so it, it is cha- very challenging to transfer that from from english um with house america as well towards the end i i used the relationship between um gwenny and uh, boyo and sid um so that they uh, gwenny and um sid used english and then eventually yeah. gwen uses more english and she sort of lost herself completely so she loses her welsh so i used that as a sort of that was a useful mm. tool really to to heighten the the experience for the for the for the characters so yeah so um being i mean really respecting the writers though and trying to be as true as possible to the writer's vision that, that, um, that's what that, i was going to ask like how aware are you of the writer's original intentions and yeah, not um, yeah. Straight I mean, from that, I I, th- I think that's 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 absolutely key, really, because you you are you are someone who's facilitating someone else's vision. I know lots of people are rewriting and reinterpreting the, um, some of the European classics, you know, um, and I think that that's a different thing. That's re- a reinterpretation. Yeah. It's very different from a, an adaptation. Um, and because they're all, all these things are modern texts, you know, I don't need to bring them into change, you know, the values change, etc. I didn't have to do that. So, and, um, yeah, I mean, and the culture, House America, the culture, 
Utah Bride, it's the same culture that, you know, yeah. really. It's, we are a bilingual country and, and we don't have to change those values very much from English no. into Welsh because we share those, you know. Uh, and do you open up a dialogue with the writer of the original text? Do you have those conversations or do you tend to ignore or not pay much attention to those avenues? Um, no, I, I haven't had conversations with the... Um, they get sent, you know, if they speak speak Welsh, of course, they are sent, um, like Ed, obviously, read it and was happy uh, with mm. House America. Um but I think, you know, Carmen trusted me to do um, Utah Bride. I, I translated Argoth, um, as Argoth, who is um, an adaptation of um, Looking, for, uh, Looking for Gretel by Charles Way. I did that for the WJC. Okay. For some reason, decided to have adaptations of, from English language plays into, into Welsh. I didn't speak to Charlie Way, but I had an editor that I spoke to. Mm. Um, and I'm... You know, you have to trust that they, they trust you and you're hoping that if they were unhappy, then, you know, you'd get nobody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm sure you would. Um, but, um, I want... Last thing I want to ask you before I let you go off into the world is what, what advice would you give to maybe someone who's starting out in the industry or kind of what advice would you like to have been given when you started out? Well, I think this is very hard. Um, I mean, it's always hard. It's a difficult profession. It's very, very hard. You, you, you're always risking, as I say, you know, I've never been able to turn work down. I've had times when I thought, how, how the hell am I going to keep going? Mm. I don't have enough money to pay the bills. Uh, if you're passionate about it, you, you keep going. You need a lot of luck, but you need a lot of hard work. So put everything you've got into every job you get. Um, go on believing in yourself, which is very, very hard. But have integrity and think about, you know, what you want to do. And if possible, I think for an actor to create your own work, if you, if you can, I think more so. I think it's much more difficult now as, you know, you know social media so many people working really hard to, to network, to make links, to reach out to people. It's a very overcrowded profession by mm. now, far more so than it was, you know, when I began, particularly in, in Welsh. But um, we have fantastic opportunity to create something wonderful and believe in more than yourself, believe in the community that you're part of. I think that's very important. And don't give up. Yeah. Don't give up. I think it is a lot about perseverance and keeping going and yeah, just learning how to deal with rejection as well. I think that's oh, something that I've yeah. had to kind of learn yeah. from is, and wearing that as kind of a badge of honour. Like the reason you're getting these rejections is because you've kept going and you persevered and you have applied for stuff. Well, yes, if you, do, if you don't try for stuff, you know, you, you mustn't care, really. You, you put yourself out there and, you know, you uh, hope for the best but expect the worst. And, uh, not, you know, not, not have expectations that everybody is going to like what you do or give you, give you work. But if you really believe in yourself and in what you're doing, um, eventually, hopefully, it will all work out. Mm. But it, it is, there's no, you know, you can't sugarcoat it. It's... It's it is it's hard, 
But you shouldn't be in it for the money, and you shouldn't no. be in it for, you know, the fame, being being well known. The only reason you should be doing it is because you really love that work, and that work is really important to you, really. Um, mm. I think I think that's and and to be part of a community, working with other people. I think this is so important. Um, really, it's it's not about the individual. Ours is a collaborative world. It's a collaborative yeah. process. You know, I think that's really really important for people to remember but it's the most when it's going well it is the most amazing <laughs> yeah. exhilarating thing yeah. <laughs> and Val, yeah. um, oh, it's been wonderful talking to you um but that's it from this episode um of in lockdown with um like to say a massive thank you to Sean morgan for let me interfere and I will catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown With but for now it's goodbye from me and goodbye from Sharon bye thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With the podcast is written produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.